I was in college many years ago, and a couple thousand miles from where I am now. I met a lot of people and learned quite a bit, not just from my textbooks, but from people I surround myself with, be they classmates or friends or both, and the internal struggle to become better than I was. Oddly, or maybe not, as that's just how things in higher education seem to go, someone that was present for all of my most formative experiences, and as you'll hear, his as well, just so happens to work up the road at ASU. Last week he made the trek down to Tucson, and we had a great conversation over coffee, which is what you're about to hear. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ben Scragg, the lead design strategist at the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Enjoy. I'm Dr. Ryan Strait, Assistant Professor of Educational Technology at the University of Arizona, and this is The New Professor. In the immortal words of every guest on WTF. Oh, have we started? <laughs> yeah. So started, started a while ago. Yeah. So you said you had some stuff you wanted to talk about. Well, yeah, I'm here um, mostly for, for uh, where I would start with promotional purposes to talk a little bit about OLC, but I'm also interested to talk about what the experience has been like um, on your side, just in the last, just in the last year, thinking about, um, you know, being part of the consortium of effective practice for, um, Squiggles network, and then kind of your own effective practice this time around for what we're doing right now. And then, um, kind of talk about OLC innovate night 2019 kind of more broadly, the programming kind of what your role in that has been. So um, just because we're in the season of let's go do this conference. It's, right. it's April. We just in the last week talked to both our keynotes and that uh, is super exciting. And then, yeah, some of it is um, and we were talking about this a little bit last night, but to the extent that we're friends, there's been a, a decade of a gap from when we first mm-hmm. met to kind of like the way that we're re- reconnecting. And I think, um, um, maybe, maybe we start there, but Ohio university is where we both mm-hmm. went to school. I went there for undergraduate, um, bachelor of science and education and did some, <laughs> did some minors there, but, and, and, BS and, and, and ED. yeah, and I'm from, <laughs> and my initials are BS. So it all, it all works out and it's all super appropriate, but also I am kind of from the area. So more than anything, my association with kind of Athens and with Southeast Ohio is is more about home mm. and then i spent the last 10 years working at the ohio state university which is uh not quite there's not quite a, a rivalry there but they're definitely two distinct places and so so much of like 
uh, have two degrees from there. So, so much of my education and like other like um, institutional identity is now kind of with Ohio State. Mm-hmm. So I think of OU more as home. And, and so I don't know if we'll get into that or maybe we should just start there since I gave such a obnoxious lead into it. But um, <laughs> well, yeah, I think I just, and you were just there, right? Well, well, yeah, we went home for for the long weekend and had to battle with winter storm Harper that turned out to be more like uh, slight annoyance. Harper, <laughs> but, I mean, a thousand, a thousand flights canceled at O'Hare. Yeah, and our we, I mean, it was nothing. We're, we were there was a, a what do they call it like an ice line or something that mm-hmm. kind of cut through the state, mm-hmm. and everything below it just got like some snow and some rain, and it was fine. Everything above it got just pummeled. Yeah, and it was above us, so we just yeah. You know, a lot of we this... stayed home and and I did electronic and home maintenance for my mother that had been about two years in the making and and uh adri did some embroidery that's right. great Elect- digital digital home maintenance oh, is yeah. a great way to put that right i mean it is the experience i think for uh so like, <laughs> one i'm counting fully that my my dad won't listen to this but it's <laughs> what's great right is very much the um very much the experience of oh i gotta tell the story now i gotta tell the story i he, hopefully he won't well it's it's much more reflective of me than it is of him anyway but he <laughs> he's had an ipad for years and years and years uh early gen ipad and it has done uh whatever it is he needs to do kind of i think play games and read books and surf the web and i think that works fairly well but he got a new one and he's he's taken in the last my dad's in his early 70s and uh, in in the last few years taken or last few months taken to kind of like capturing some of his stories of his childhood um, or early adult years that kind of led him to be an educator. And so he was talking about, you know, he posted some Facebook posts on like his experiences with his teachers and how those were formative and people have been receptive. And so he started a blog. So we open up the iPad, get it started. <laughs> this first question. So how do I get my blog on here? <laughs> And I'm, I'm, you know, it's, we're home and I'm trying to do other stuff. I'm like, what do you, I mean, have you logged in? No. How, why isn't that on here? <laughs> and he's trolling me. It takes me a minute to kind of figure out, but he never coughs to it. And I never confront him about it, but I'm still find myself getting more and more just like, why are you asking me these questions? Why are we doing this? And, and then he launches into this story, which I now feel compelled to share that a buddy had got him a drone a few weeks ago. And he was flying it and flew it into our creek behind our house. We have a it's a branch of the Hocking River. I don't think you're supposed to do that. So his story <laughs> of how he goes to fish it out and get it out winds up with him falling down uh, essentially a hillside, a uh, rocky hillside, falling backwards into the creek and hitting his head on a rock in mm-hmm. the creek. And thinking to himself, this is how this is how this is going to end. <laughs> and so I, you know, he tells me the story very casually and with some glee that he is, he's escaped death clutches. And I just find myself getting more and more mad. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I think what I was, <laughs> what I didn't tell him was like, you were going to die a meme. You were going to become a worldwide <laughs> story of old man uh, drowns trying to fetch his drone that he flew into a creek. And I was like that. Look, man, there's there's a lot of ways to go, but that, you know, don't leave me with that. That's so. that's approaching a Darwin Award. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. 
wouldn't wouldn't be fitting for for everything else. So, hey, how about how about that for an opening? That's great. <laughs> so now that we're sufficiently warmed up, then why don't you, and we can, you know, the best place to start is the beginning. But yeah. first, uh, you should probably uh, introduce yourself yeah. because I I am pathologically averse to giving introductions. It makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense. So I'm Ben Scrag. Uh, I am. Um, currently I work at Arizona State University, uh, in the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College. I'm a lead design strategist, which is kind of a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating job, job title. And, and we're up to interesting work, particularly in the context of Arizona. Uh, but what's probably most relevant for, for folks here, given where our conversation is likely to head is that I'm one of the conference co-chairs for OLC Innovate 2019, uh, which will be taking place April 3rd to 5th in Denver, Colorado. Um, so, and also a former classmate of mm-hmm. yours in, it had to have been an EDCI course. The EDCS. 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 Yeah. Yeah. 501, 503. And Dr. Naji Muhammad. Um, so, yeah. So, thanks for having me. Yeah. And you're actually the, uh, the first person. So, we're, we are in the studio, but we're yeah. not in the usual studio because typically I do this on campus. On campus. In, uh, the Office of Digital Learning, they have a studio oh. that the the first two people to be on the podcast, uh, Angela and Luis, oh. they run this, well, it's, you know, Angela kind of runs ODL in a way and uh, Luis runs okay. the studio. So to all you dear listeners out there who... Uh, keep track of guests uh angela i will make the case is the reason i'm here mm. with you today so i prior I, I joined asu's teachers college in uh, september 2017 and for the the 10 years prior to that worked at the ohio state university in columbus ohio so it was through olc and the community we kind of built and and kind of my friendship with angela that led to the the connections of networks of hey there's some work going on at ASU that might be interesting. So for, for folks connecting the dots, she's also, uh, while not here, features prominently in the in the stories of today. Yes, there's, there's always a, an Angela undertone yeah, under everything. As there should be. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure she... Gunder 2020. Would appreciate us. Talk, I wonder if her ears are burning. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so uh, but yes, but instead of being at that studio, we are actually in my house, and it's lovely in, in my office, which features prominently in all of my online class videos. They get to look at my hodgepodge of a bookshelf. Behind. Yeah. Do the um, do the dogs make it into much of? They do. I call them my TAs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> makes <laughs> they, sense. They always come up, and I get flanked by the brownies. Well, I was brownies. super. I was grateful for. Uh, mentioning this morning, but she was my, she was my snooze button. Yeah. Uh, so I set an alarm, <laughs> overslept, and then she said, "It's time to get up," and it was. Yep. No, she's good for that. At least she didn't drop that ball on your head. That's what she does. No, <laughs> she put it. She put it under my seat, so I sat on it, not on my head, <laughs> underneath me. Always comfortable. Minji is for those that don't know, that don't follow the, the adventures of the pups in this place. Minji is the middle child. And she acts like it. <laughs> She's bossy. So yeah. let's um, let's start at the beginning. Yeah. So bring us bring us back. Yeah. 
take us back. I don't have a sound effect for that. Yeah. Well, um, so we had to have, I was actually, I was trying to think through this uh, last, last night. Yeah, I was having trouble doing it, that too. It had to have been. So my, I did five years at Ohio University. I started in journalism. So uh, growing up, I thought as I would play like Madden and NBA Jam, I would announce along to those. And so my mom would walk <laughs> past the room every so often with me playing video games saying, you, uh, you should really go to school for broadcasting. And it turns out Ohio University is a great school for journalism. It was one of the best 25 yeah. miles away from my house growing up. So that just always seemed like, yeah, maybe I'll be good at that. And I remember one of the very early networking events at the college with like the dean being like, so why are you here? And I'm 18 years old. I know nothing about how to network or how to be even marginally impressive to anyone. Not that that's changed much. And saying, so why are you? He was like, so, you know, so why are you here? Which is funny now because those are the kinds of like existential questions that I'm about to pose to you and that I love to chew through. But I just said, well, you know, I think I'm good at talking. This is literally what I said to this guy. And he was one of the first people I think that I'd ever come across who like, you know, kind of took took me seriously enough to say like, I don't think that's a very good reason to be here. And it's at a networking event. And I was like, oh, well. I'll keep file that under that may become relevant later <laughs> or for anyone listening, it might be, you know, really obvious right now, but, um, over time kind of changed my major to education and, um, upon graduating, moved to Chicago and taught high school in Chicago. But, but the last, my fifth year, because I, I didn't switch to education until I was in maybe my third, third year at uh, Ohio university. Um, I was an RA, for two quarters and then I, I student taught my my last spring term um, but because I had finished all my coursework started signed up for a grad class and I knew Doc Muhammad um, and had taken a different class with him and really liked him and I was like just what can I take with this guy I'm on the way out the door I just this is this is dessert let's take a class with this guy and maybe you can talk a little bit about your experiences with him as well. It was just a, a sadly his past, but as a, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scholar, super, um, just a guy who provoked my thinking and, and in the kind of way that's like cuts to who you are, the kind that you need. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well it's, it's, uh, someone who would make a real strong distinction between being educated and being schooled. Right. And oh, he was there oh. for education, right. Yeah. He wasn't there for the schooling. Unschool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, just remember taking taking that class as a technically as an undergrad but it being a grad class and uh that's you were there that's where we met and so actually i I, this was going to be i was going to save this for last but let yeah let's start at the beginning you i don't know if you remember this but it was one of like my favorite assignments i ever did he asked us to write a paper on the anchors of our identity so we had been like looking at identity and thinking about like mm. themes. And I think it had come from reading like the autobiography of Malcolm X mm. as part of the course. And I remember some of the other, um, we read Car Cornell West. I think it was his dissertation, ethical dimensions of Marxist thought was yeah, one of the other books in that class, which is over there on the bookshelf. Yeah. Somewhere. Purple. <laughs> so, uh, and probably Joel spring wheels in the head was probably part of that. Maybe right is it sitting there? So here's a question for you to, to lead in and to get me to stop talking. Yeah, if you're I say, you're a guest on my podcast. If I, say, <laughs> if I say anchors of identity, 
do you have any recollection of what you would have written for an assignment like that then? And if I pose that to you now, what do you think the anchors of your identity are? Do you have easy or, or kind of obvious things that come to mind? See, I don't remember that assignment. I really don't. I, the things I remember from his classes and from that time, generally speaking, are more of kind of a, a, the, the mental static that occurs when you are questioning everything you've ever known. (laughs) And, you know, when someone brings an experience to you that is so wholly foreign in a way that you can understand, but you still really have to wrestle with that's everything else kind of gets the saturation turned down a little bit. And that's what I remember, but I don't remember that in that specific assignment. I probably should. I probably got it in my computer somewhere because I kept, I've kept everything for the past 20 years, you know? Um, but it's, that is a question that man, I think about all the time. I, yeah, this question of identity, who am I? Uh, My mother had a a thing on the fridge all growing up, uh, in that, the same house my entire life that said something along the lines of the, the books you read and the people you associate with are, are what you become. Mm. And I thought that was interesting. I'm, I'm not sure I believe it because I think that it's more complicated than that, but I do think that it's interesting. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you can sympathize with this. I, I find the older I get that I, I do see what I would call an identity as you know, I can start identifying the different uh, media that I've consumed, the writers that I've read, the music mm-hmm. that I've listened to, the thinkers mm-hmm. that I've, you know, and the friends that I've had. And I can, I can actually identify the composite com- parts of my quote unquote identity that yeah. are specifically related to those people or those things. And the, the problem that I have with that is that, you know, it, it assumes, I mean, that kind of assignment, that kind of question you know, the, the anchors of your identity yeah. is it's an open question. It never stops. You know, if you ask the same question yes. two months later and you're going to have a different answer. Yes. Um, at least you should, yeah. because you should be, you know, I hate using bud words, like buzzwords, like lifelong learner and, yeah. and stuff like that. But if, if it's, if it doesn't change, I feel like you're not doing enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so for me, I, I remember what I wrote. I don't have the, um, I don't think I still have that paper, but I can re- remember distinctly that one of the big themes. So I think the way it, it, that I wrote about it was in kind of bullet point themes. And then I expounded on, on those from a list, but the, the primary one was change that I at a point and, and, uh, of course at the time it occurred as some great wisdom. Um, and, um, I don't necessarily discount that now, but, um, but I think it is interesting to think about one of the things I had thought I had had a similar experience where you're, this was a, a man who opened, um, classes with, um, you know, this is a racist country <laughs> and <laughs> mm-hmm. this is a, a country built on white supremacy and white privilege. And if you, and you know, if you're a white person here, you, you have lived kind of under the 
the comforting blanket of that, even if you've never known it. Yeah. Um, and that, that the invisible knapsack, I yeah. remember Peggy McIntosh's piece was and, such a seminal moment in that class. And you know, like, uh, Tim, Tim, Wise. Tim Wise's white wine was mm-hmm. one of the first pieces you read. And I remember so I, I got him to come speak. Ah, uh, there. So, I, cause I remember I told Najee, I was like, Hey, I emailed Tim Wise and he's willing to come and talk here. And nice. Najee looked at me, he's like, the hell did you do? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, really? Yeah. Yeah. Just and, emailed him. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it was one of those interesting things like my, I came into college with this very set plan. I had been attending, um, a really, really kind of conservative evangelical church and left like reading, <laughs> Um, reading, you know, uh, Cornell West and, and, uh, yeah. And Tim Wise and kind of, kind of having this experience. And so I had, you know, in those years you, you undergo a lot of change and some of it is not necessarily, uh, it's not violent to your psyche, but it, you do wrestle with mm-hmm. a lot of things and the tension of like holding different ideas in your head at the same time and kind of figuring out what those mean. And that was all really, I mean, what's funny is college for me in that sense was all on a really it was all individual, right? It was all happening within me and, and then being prepared to go be a teacher where now all of a sudden you're responsible for so many other people, but still kind of figuring those things out. Um, that was all an interesting time, but I was really grateful to him for that. So I remember change being mm. one of those things and it changes so big and broad at the time. It was the, what's the biggest box I can think of that allows <laughs> me wiggle room to not be anchored literally by these right. things. And, and so it, but I think it's, it's, kind of borne out over time that um, my thinking has really shifted and shaped and changed along with kind of the context I find myself in or the or same link, what I'm reading and what's influencing me. Yeah. Cause I mean, if, if, if the anchors you know, to use his yeah. term, if the anchors yeah. of your identity are the same at 22 as they are when you're pushing 40, yeah, you've been, what, what was he used to say? Shadow boxing. Yeah. You've been shadow boxing with the world probably. Well, and, I mean, it's, it's a funny thing where, um, you know, I mean, I just think about this, right? Like, has, um, <laughs> it sounds like such an abhorrent answer that I instantly want to like, absolutely in no way, like has whiteness been part of your, like an anchor of your identity. And it's Gee, like, <laughs> well, I mean, a big part of that, right. Is like, that's to me and my understanding as that evolved is like, well, part of it was that would be something that would always be invisible to you because you, you've never known what it's not like to live as that or enjoy the, the, the privilege of that. And so like, yeah, just digging into like, I, I don't think I put that in my paper and I think it's funny. I, for, I'm still in school reading bell hooks right now. And again, teaching community yeah <laughs> so that's that's the text for the course this term right i had started with teaching to transgress but now i'm reading teaching community and one of the things in there that she i was reading this on a plane over the holidays and being like ah, that speaks to my life a lot is um someone like me who's i'm you know i'm a really good case study for our archetype of like well-intentioned kind of white person but um not always willing to kind of engage particularly in like anti-racist work or those sorts of things because you, you fear the conflict or the fear of being misunderstood or stepping in places where you shouldn't and, and being not willing to and kind of endure the conflict of let's say being corrected or being um, critiqued or engaging in that because 
it feels like a blanket you wear personally mm-hmm. and it's it's speaking into some inadequacy in your soul and so like all the nuances and complexities that come around from that and and that's all wrapped inside of kind of just like one person's perspective so mm-hmm. um so I, yeah i don't know i I'm, I'm i don't know if that's something i should dedicate more time to and thinking like is that an anchor of your identity but i can remember thinking at the time like I'm willing to engage in these ideas. Change feels really good. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see where the other stuff goes. Yeah, I think that was, speaking of my presumed path yeah. when I went to college was I'm going to be an English teacher. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to move back home to my hometown and be an English teacher there, which is predominantly white and pure middle class. You know, and so these these kinds of questions, until I got to that point, when I took 302 or four something with him and uh, uh, Matthew Huey, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I had never needed to confront yep. those kinds of questions because yep. it just was a non-issue. Yeah, it, it's not was, that I was avoiding; it was just literally, and that's right, a non-issue. And actually, that's that's super that's super interesting to point out. Yeah, I had several classes with Dr. Huey before, and he was I think he was working. I'm not sure. It was obviously before he went to Virginia, and I think he's mm. at the University of Connecticut now. Mm. Um, I just followed him through Twitter, but um, which is another interesting thing, like threads of past lives. To, mm. uh, and he's doing um, obviously incredible work. But yeah, he, I think about that some. He, I had classes with him before Dr. Mm. Muhammad, and I think in some ways um, he did a lot of like Tim Wise and Joel Spring were people mm-hmm. that he had introduced um, me to. And so like, as kind of a precursor to like the experience with Doc Muhammad. I think those were both really formative. So yeah, yeah, he's, he was someone who was really important to me. And I think that actually that progression mm-hmm. is, it was probably the best way that it could have happened. Yeah. I mean, now that we know more about, you know, call it the backfire effect that, you know, you might be confronted with with facts that disagree or disprove your position or maybe show that you are in the wrong. And you're less likely to just, you know, to go, oh, OK, I should probably change than you are to just dig in your heels and, and really kind of double down on that admittedly uh, not ideal position, call yeah. it, you know, yeah. and the thing and speaking you know j- just for myself and you know middle class white guy mm-hmm. um looking back on it if it had just been str- if i had just straight gone into one of doc's classes i don't know if that backfire effect would have not happened i, I might have just been like well you're just attacking me there are but uh-huh. Matt, but i feel like matthew huey you know, as a 22-year-old kid that with no experience in this whatsoever, yep. that was such a great bridge. Yep. You know, he, he really helped that work. And then, of course, you know, Najee ended up being like a, like a father yeah. figure to me after my father passed. Yeah. You know, he basically adopted me. So, Well, it's it's funny. Um, there, I, I can remember having class. So I kind of uh, can remember the, yeah, having the first class with Dr. Muhammad kind of going in there kind of like, prime to be like oh I, not that it was um um i guess just like oh i'm excited because i have an expectation for this mm-hmm. kind of stuff we'll dig into 
it's going to help me grow. Yeah, but there were, <laughs> there were definitely folks who that was their first experience and it was, it was a confrontation. Yeah. And, and you saw that fact, happen. Like <laughs> teaching, teaching for community, like bell hooks comes right out of the gate with like mm-hmm. racist, colonialist, sexist, like I buy all of that, but it is, um, or the, the writing of, of Tracy McMillan Cottom, who's going to be mm-hmm. one of our keynotes to innovate it, you know, there is something in the experience of you wake up in the morning, you set your coffee down, you open your screen to start reading and those words mm-hmm. come at you or for me. And it, it's literally just the saturation of, of the sum of experiences that I have to center like my focus on like, no, that's right. You, you agree with this and this, <laughs> I mean, I think it's, um, yep. You're here for this. You buy this, you're in this is not um you don't have to read this as a personal attack on you yeah and that is a skill that needs developed yeah i think a lot of people their initial reaction is is yeah it's def- being defensive it, not all men that sure. you know that sure. kind of thing but like, not me yeah well what, and what that's you, what did you say last night that everything's everything's funny until oh it was from the dave Chappelle, um one of the comedy specials he did I think in 20 must have been 2017 might have been 20 but the last last couple of years of he leads off of everything's funny till it happens to you right and i feel like that's that's the mindset that you know i i had that when i first kind of ventured down this road of of self-betterment and and understanding and and whatnot that you know sure this is an issue but it's not i'm not the reason you yeah, know right <laughs> like, right it's every it's everybody else that's the problem it's not me yeah, I mean, Which is it's utter shit. Like it's, 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 if it's, what did you say? It's not, you're, you're not in traffic. You are traffic. <laughs> yeah. No, so I can't remember where I heard it, but it's like those little reframes of things. Mm-hmm. One of the ideas, right? Yeah. You're, when you're, when you're driving and you're stuck, you're, you're not in traffic. You are the traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, and so much of it for me, I think I can diagnose these things pretty simply as like just wanting to be okay wanting to not be part of a problem that mm-hmm. I see that is obviously structural. But I mean, there are, I have individual behaviors and thoughts and actions that I take in my sphere, but in broadly, I'd like to think that those kind of largely aren't problematic, but that's where some diagnosis in and of itself. But, but the other piece, right. Is you just, you want to feel most people, I would, I guess, make the case just like want to feel good about themselves. But yeah. in, in some of this stuff, like some of the interesting critiques to me, get into the nuance of like, yes. And in setting up a life where you allow yourself to feel good, particularly through, let's say, inaction or um, perpetuation of, of a lot of the stuff, um, you have basically the ability or privilege to to nestle into those spaces and live that way um and so digging digging out some of that um it's just been an interesting thought to me so yeah it's yeah it's i there's a youtube channel called contrapoints i don't know if you know contrapoints it's uh, run by natalie Wynn. she does really fascinating and very entertaining cultural critique mm. um I can't remember exactly how she was just like, I, I complain about the internet. I think she said something, something like that, but, uh, she, she did say she was given at, at the XOXO conference or something like that. Um, she said that she was a PhD student studying philosophy 
and left about halfway through because it's as it turns out the examined life is not worth living (laughs) 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 i got a kick out of that and i'm going to put links to all this stuff in the show notes like the the, especially especially peggy mcintosh's uh the invisible knapsack because that was i remember that the one thing that stuck out to me for some reason was band-aids okay because this is something Najee brought up and i think it's something that that Matt brought up too, but it's something that she says in her in her work. It's like, you know, white privilege is it's the invisible knapsack that you carry around that's got all these things in it that you don't know that help you, but they do. Like, have you ever had a hard time finding a band aid to match your skin tone? Mm. If the answer is no, well, guess what? <laughs> you know, and I just the simplicity of that, the mundane, the mundanity, mundane. Mundanity? Mundanity? I'm, I'm, I approve. How, I, I don't know. <laughs> the simplicity of, of yeah. just, it's a Band-Aid. That's it. It's just, a, it's, you know. A banality. Banality. There you go. There you go. Um, and I don't know why that stuck out to me, just because it was so kind of discardable. Mm-hmm. And you would never think of the Band-Aid as a symbol of, of race, racial inequality. Yeah. At least I wouldn't, because I didn't need to. It was never in my face. You know, I need a Band-Aid, I grab a Band-Aid, I put it on, it vaguely matches my skin tone. Never have to think about it. Yeah. It's probably a whole, it, like, it's probably a whole conversation of the, the yeah, just some of the reflection. Um, I mean, we're in that conversation, but. Um, That's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, there's, or yeah, a whole series, but um, yeah, yeah th- those pieces one of the interesting things I'll say, and this is this is not just in lieu of any other kind of more graceful segue, because I think one of the interesting things, maybe even setting up some of this for us, is that then it saturates the rest of the conversation. Or you can say, you know, that's good pretext for knowing that even this conversation we're having maybe happens within all that context. But um, I work uh, work for uh, Punya Mishra, who's associate dean at in the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College. Um, in the Office of Scholarship and Innovation. He's the Associate Dean for Scholarship and Innovation. And he, I mean, he's an incredible teacher, incredible educator. But one of the things that we talk about a lot, because this is who he is, is just seeing design in the world. Mm-hmm. So particularly like we bring a design uh, focus and approach to a lot of what we do in education and kind of see that design and education are, I mean, they're really interlocked and 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 imbued with one another and kind of reify one another. And so Punya talks a lot about just, he's a, someone who's just really fascinating, curious with the world and really observant and is a noticer of things. And so a lot of the times he'll say, well, that's good design or bad design just as we're walking or he'll ask his students to start kind of looking for good design and bad design. And kind of with the idea that like, Hey, once you notice that most everything around us um, is kind of, artificial or has been made even our systems and structures then you can understand how they might be remade Mm. or redesigned or recrafted and where it gets interesting then is in um these spaces where you're not necessarily talking about um just a band-aid when you look at a band-aid you're Mm. looking at kind of the ethos of and 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 the thinking that went into who is this band-aid for and that's it makes me think of um, 
uh, I can't remember his first name. His last name is Klein. And in the 80s, he wrote uh, a piece called What is Technology? Or it attempted to define technology. And he came up with four different definitions. And one of them is the socio-technical system or socio-cultural system of use of something. That it's not just the item. It's not just the people that make it. It's also the, the knowledge that it has to, to go into making it. It's the production system that allows this thing to be made. But it's also the culture in which that thing is useful. Yeah. Mm. which is an interesting way of, of kind of pulling back from it and seeing the, the spider web of connections that make that thing useful and or necessary. Yeah. yeah. So Stephen Klein. Stephen Klein, yes, thank you. K-L-I-N-E. Yeah. Just had to Google it here. Yeah, this looks great. 1985 was mm. the technology. I'll check it out for sure. Um, yeah, um, I mean, you weren't going to have a conversation with me without me dropping John Dewey here in various places and probably misappropriating the quotes, but yeah, Dewey defined kind of technology as a way of thinking and so not, and as a, as a methodology and not, um, not just the physical stuff. And so, um, I think there's a lot of folks kind of thinking about that, the mm -hmm. design, uh, or even kind of the design thinking, um, kind of materials and and pieces that have come out in recent years you know there's a whole set of mindsets that accompany just kind of the, the procedural processes yeah and remember we were talking about um about post phenomenology which is kind of my yeah. my uh latest rabbit hole okay that i'm falling down yeah, yeah, yeah. academically and, and cognitively speaking um but one of the big names in that is is verbeek and he wrote uh a book called What Things Do. And he writes a lot about design and how design changes the experience of our world. Um, so I would, I will put that in the show notes as well. But it's, it's fascinating. Like, uh, he wrote an entire article about park benches. Mm. You know, and the, and I, and I want to say that he touches on, and maybe you'll know if this is, if I'm saying this a little bit incorrectly, but like inconvenient design. A discriminatory design. Yeah, there's I mean, another, there's another I mean, Ruha there. Benjamin at OLC in Evate 2018, that a lot of her keynote was, was related to that. Yeah, like um, putting the, putting the, it looks just like armrests. Yeah, but it's a divider so people can't lay down and sleep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. or I noticed that around, um, yeah, when people will put kind of square benches or around kind of otherwise planters for trees mm -hmm. that they'll put those kind of artificial kind of metal straps that kind of just, mm -hmm. just would make it uncomfortable if, if you happen to lay down on that. And again, it makes me, it's, it's, it's hard not to just, it's hard to focus yeah. sometimes because well, there's so many ways that you can go with everything that you're thinking about, like honing in and yeah. not say, Ooh, academic squirrel. Yeah. Like I want well, to go study. I want to go follow that. So this is what's interesting then in, in the work we're doing at ASU in the, in the teacher's college, some of that is looking um, maybe less overtly at, let's say, discrimination. But we are thinking about, hey, schools, school systems have been designed in particular ways. And, and um, there are different kind of levels to that. So there's a discrete, let's say, moment of, of classroom instruction where there's a there's a handout or a worksheet or you're there's a particular piece of technology we're employing to do a thing but then within that there's a larger kind of in what you might consider instructional or learning experience design of 
what's the context of the, the objectives that we want a student to learn or how we're going to deliver that, how we're going to assess it to something even larger, which is, well, how do we organize the school? So are mm-hmm. they in, is it a, in one classroom with one teacher and 30 students, or are there other ways we could organize and design that? And then, you know, are there even larger things like, um, is the school just kind of a box where you, you drop your kids off at 8 a.m., you pick them up at 3 p.m., you come back and get them. You have gone off presumably to do your own thing during the day and you come back and you hope they're better when you pick them up. It's the black box. And they go in, magic happens, they come out. Or, you know, and so <laughs> it just happens to look like a person. Yeah, and school is kind of a place on the way and the kids have their activities and they have mm-hmm. their own light and they're kind of this discreet thing. And so or thinking about, you know, what would it look like if a school was really the hub? of a community's life or um, Nick Berbulis at the University of, of Illinois um, Urbana-Champaign did some work on, on the idea of ubiquitous learning. So what happens when internet of things and wearable devices, when the internet's everywhere, um, what would that change around like what school becomes? And so he had this idea of uh, one, he was writing it a few years ago as like a social foundations issue. But what if the school adopted a model of a hub and spoke because if you could learn anywhere and any time, mm-hmm. then how might we change the, the nature of school? And so those are the ideas I think we are kind of playing around with as we go work with communities to say, well, what are so what are the challenges around how your kind of schools and communities have been designed? What are the things we could do? And I think we're just scratching the surface um, in the context of, of Arizona. Say, how do we how do we contribute to what you're up to? So um, I think it's an interesting uh, overlap that the, uh, the, the the wheel and spoke model looks an awful lot like the panopticon. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know? Just to just to throw out some Foucault or some Beth. Well, yeah. Sunday morning. You didn't tell me the, you didn't you didn't tell me this was gonna be a Foucault conversation. I'm gonna steer this quickly over to Yeah. Out of one frying pan into another. And the record skips and mm-hmm. everybody stops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you done come to the wrong, well, you know wrong what? neighborhood. Well, while I'm just going back through kind of the, my own academic history, it's again another person who's not likely to, uh, I presume, catch on to all my my confessions. So I talked about my dad and, and some of the, and, and, you know, um, I have a book at home I just picked up this week because Foucault came back on the radar in one of our classes because obviously discourse about power, but. Mm. I have one Foucault book, which is kind of like a somebody else doing analysis of Foucault, which isn't quite the same thing. But I picked it up this week and was like, "Are you crazy? You got you got a bunch of other stuff to do." So, so I'm uh, hit pause on Foucault right now. And, and Dr. Sam Roca, have you ever listened to this from the University of uh, British Columbia in Vancouver? Um, I have your Foucault 2.0 book. You you lent it to me a decade ago. And, uh, I still have it. I still have not read it. So there you go. Yeah, I've got a book around here that's got Naji or Muhammad written real big on the spine. Oh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know which book it is anymore, but it's over there somewhere. But actually, while I'm doing plugs, um, Sam has written, he's got this, it's a beautiful little book called uh, A Primer for Philosophy and Education. Hmm. Uh, and he's got a beautiful metaphor about um, priming is painting, but it's also something different. And so you, the way that you prime something um, before you paint it, you there's a there's an attention and a care and discipline. And he kind of applies that to why philosophy matters 
for educators in, in reading philosophy, the idea that it, uh, as a primer. So in the book is tiny and it's got, um, I think one of his family members did illustrations. So Sam in lieu of taking your book um, many years ago, uh, I will plug the books you've written, which are amazing. <laughs> yes. And again, in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Go, and, and you'll go be, buy that book right now. Yes. And, uh, and make up for whatever the cost of the Foucault book was. And the, the link will definitely not be an Amazon affiliate. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So let's, we, we kind of shifted in that direction a little bit. But yeah. I think you wanted to talk a little bit more about well, OLC because that's, that's really what, yeah. um, between, between the squad goals network. Well, yeah, because I'm, I'm, I think one of the things that this has been, I mean, not even just kind of the, the few minutes that we've been talking here, but I see, um, OLC that the impact it's had just on the relationships that I've built in a lot of ways, I would say it's probably one of the reasons like that's in it kind of enabled us to reconnect even mm -hmm. here. Um, so yeah, I, uh, was at Ohio State for 10 years and in 2013 uh, moved from, from one part of the university where I was staff over to the Office of Distance Ed and E-Learning um, and became an instructional designer, which was I had felt like a good fit from essentially being a, a K-12 educator, high school teacher, to coming to Ohio State to be a learning specialist, working with students kind of in, in individual settings, to then designing instruction uh, or supporting mostly online graduate degree, online instruction. And uh, <laughs> Dr. Rob Griffiths, uh, who was uh, leading the uh, distance ed team, still does, was a great dude. Um, was like, hey, you should probably learn to be an instructional designer now that you are one. Uh, <laughs> why don't you go down to this uh, OLC conference? It was ET4 online back then. So I went to Dallas all alone and they send out the email like, Hey, do you want to volunteer to like chair a session? I was like, well, yeah, I'll go ahead and do that. Since I'm going down alone, I might as well like learn to network. Mm -hmm. And I had a, another great friend and colleague, Tom Evans say, Oh, when you're down there, you should talk to this person and this person and this person. And it was basically like, it was like, Hey, you should talk to Jesse Stommel and you should go meet Amy Collier and you and, <laughs> and, uh, Jim Groom's keynote. So you should go say hi to him. Mm -hmm. And so Tom knew, these folks and I, um, it's not about like putting, let's say them on a pedestal, but it turned out they're like pretty influential and kind of leading both scholars and practitioners in these spaces. And so all things yeah, equal, they're yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big names. Yeah. And it turned out that they were pretty active on Twitter and I hadn't really been. So I was just like fired in, like they're making dinner plans. So I can see all that. And I'm like, Hey, mind if I tag along? And they're like, yeah, come on. And I wound up just kind of hanging out, just kind of writing their coattails through the conference. Mm. And it was like, this is my new friend group. <laughs> and they were so welcoming. And I mean, in that space met Laura Pesquini and Jess Knott. And I mean, from there, basically it was like, Jess Knott, this is, this is my person. I love her. <laughs> and so basically through there met a whole bunch of other MSU folks who are amazing and like what they're up to at, up at the hub and, and um, kind of the way they approach working in and around the university is pretty cool. And so, yeah, so I just kind of started building this network of friends who felt, you know, more like friends than like 
I'm at a totally different institution. We don't work together. Mm -hmm. There's no obvious point of collaboration, but yet we just kind of maintain those friendships. And so through the OLC network, uh, just around this, this one conference kind of continued to meet, um, and drink bourbon with people and, and really kind of build, um, a sense of the field too. And found people who were really interested in some of these things that we've talked about, kind of the, mm-hmm. what's it mean to really do really humanized online learning. So Michelle Pekansky Brock mm-hmm. is just like in my mind is a legend who is, is leading the community college summit at innovate 2019 when she's chaired this conference mm-hmm. uh, before. And so like, it just kind of one of those things that the community in and around these spaces and the people who are doing really interesting work kind of all connects. And so it's through that, that, kind of met um angela and and have reconnected with you and it's kind of like oh yeah we know each other and it's like oh here's this whole history that opened <laughs> up and that was what maybe a year ago or so so um i might have been down in new orleans in 2017 but so these things are um it's exciting i think it's one of the things that i've kind of discovered on my own which i guess if we, we talked to some of the folks who might be listening might be u of a students um and there may be a broader audience, but my journey started as, uh, you know, I have a, a bachelor's in education, a teaching degree with certification in to teach high school or junior high social studies. Mm-hmm. And yet the majority of my career has been in these other kind of interesting positions of instructional designer, learning specialist, a, a grant program manager, and now a design strategist working in schools. And most of it's all been connected to who you know, but the thing that has been interesting is that hasn't felt like a cheap adage or it hasn't felt like, well, if you're not a Vanderbilt, then you don't know anybody. It's been build relationships with finding kind of like-minded and like-spirited people and and see where that takes you and find interesting work. So, so I feel really proud of this conference and that's why I'm really excited for kind of what's coming because it's been a place where it's been really welcoming. And along the way, other people who are, who've come on board, I think, I think it's the other piece is someone made space for me. Mm. And I think we're trying to make space for people who will lead this after us. And, and the folks at the OLC who are full-time there support us in every way around that. So it's been this really interesting kind of interesting experience to say, Oh, um, these are fun people to connect with. These are fun people to work with. And there's a, there's a, a group of people who are committed to kind of fostering that. So that's my OLC love fest. And, and you should, <laughs> if, if that doesn't sound like any, any part of a community that anyone would want to join, then I should say there's like crazy, amazing keynote speakers and really interesting kind of programming. And so just a last thing is a shout out to Clark Shaw Nelson, who's, who's co-chairing the conference with me. And Clark is um, kind of another one of those people who comes into your orbit. And you're like this, <laughs> Where did this dude come from? He is. Where has this dude been? Yeah. He's, it <laughs> uh, he, uh, he strikes me like maybe he's just always been, his spirit has just hovered over the earth since the beginning uh, and will per- continue to. He's just such a, um, just such an engaging, funny, warm, thoughtful guy. So I, my hope is that in some ways the, the, the programming and the conference experience for people like reflects that. So. And I think it does. I mean, the, the, I initially got in with the OLC folks. It was just because, um, actually Angela suggested that I shocker s- submit something to innovate the one in new Orleans a couple years ago. 
and I had like, I'd never heard of it. I didn't know anything about it, you know? And I was like, well, I mean, yeah, I can present. Is there anything else I can do? And ended up being in the innovation lab. Yeah. Wearing the lab coat and yeah. working in there yeah. with all you guys. And that's how I met all you. And now I'm one of the check chair, uh, track workshops for innovation. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, and it, it's kind of, kind of undergone some changes over the years. So that was kind of my first foray into this was like, it was the innovation lab. Well, it was kind of part of the technology test kitchen had been playing around. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the, that was the precursor and still exists mostly, I think in OLC accelerate and is a, mm-hmm. a super engaging space with the innovation lab. And now I think this year we're going to call it the innovation studio. Um, but it's really such a cool place. And I know other conferences are starting to think about like, how do we have that kind of perpetual space where people can come engage and play, um, and really kind of, um, do relationship building and, and kind of be entertained as well. So Mm -hmm. I think that's, um, uh, and collaborate. So I think those things are really interesting. So yeah, we have a a pretty amazing team running that. So just as kind of a a check-in while it's here, what has been your experience this year with kind of workshops as you took an approach where there are particular things because you, uh, you know, I think a lot of us are work in higher ed. Some of us are, uh, more staff or kind of practitioner based. And I think there's a, a large audience there. You kind of have this interesting background as like starting in some ways as like support staff practitioner and are now have transitioned into being an academic though. I think practice is still a big piece of kind of, kind of what you do. Was there a particular focus you wanted to bring to like workshops and, and the experience folks will have? I, th- I think between me and my co-chair, Sherry, um, our main focus was, is this one we would want to go to? I don't know. I, that's, I mean, that was a main part of it. Obviously, uh, a lot of it was, you know, what's, what's zeitgeisty? What do people, what do we know people want to know about? What do we think people will want to know about that they don't know they want to, about, want to know about yet? You know, the things that we see coming on the horizon that aren't quite here yet. And cause that's the one thing that I always feel that innovate especially, um, can do just by virtue of what it is, is kind of take chances. Yeah. You know, um, like I said yesterday, like part, you know, the, I personally believe that one of the core aspects of, of achieving that, you know, nebulous thing that we call innovation is a willingness to fail. Yeah. Yeah. Trying something that is a little bit out there, but is based and rooted in, in good theory you know, and good practice. Yeah. But just pushes it enough so that you're like, wow, yeah, if that works, that'll be great. You know, that's what I want to hear about things. If that works, that'll be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and because there's always a chance it might not. Yeah. But that, that I think is, is important that we shoot for that. Well, and it's, it's. I mean, that, that word innovation, it's funny. That word has been, you know, innovate is the online learning consortiums conference that, that we'll be headed to in, in April, Ohio state where I came from, had a conference or has a conference also called innovate. I think it was, I think they, I think the Buckeyes will want to claim that their conference is called innovate first. And, and it, what's fair is 
ET4 online and it kind of mm-hmm. has merged, I think maybe with a blended conference. So I'll see it done and they named it innovate, but it makes sense. But that word's around and ASU for anyone who, uh, doesn't spend much time in around the Phoenix metro area. Uh, the ASU buses and shuttles very prominently will display wraps that say ASU is the number one ranked university in, in the country for innovation and have been for a few years. And and to be fair, ASU does strike me as a fairly innovative, fun place. I really, really enjoy being there. Um, but that word is kind of everywhere to the point where you know, it was at OLC a few years ago. Rollin Moe did a series of exhibitions on kind of what innovation is and means and how do we understand it as a term and did some really interesting writing. And Chris Gilliard's done the same. Um, but, you know, it's innovation is is something that's so just by its definition is something that's so hard to be against that right. you can you can wield it in a lot of different and interesting ways. But I think um I think one of the things that's come around again, kind of at this conference has been um, folks coming in to understand, not just sell big ideas or just share a lot of hype about kind of different technologies or teaching practices, but trying to be thoughtful as well around like, okay, but what does that mean? And who does that mean that for? And um, you know, the institutions that, that folks come from are everything from kind of, big prestigious kind of either research universities or uh, Ivy League schools too. Um, folks who are coming in from all online schools and universities and community colleges. And so there's an interesting mix of ideas and, and, you know, a lot of times we talk about good design, you know, constraint, you know, creates the opportunity set for design and mm-hmm. good design. And so a lot of times folks who might think they're resource constrained, have come up with innovation that really big, big schools or places where they have more resources can learn from and leverage because it's been tested and proven in context where those constraints force people to kind of be creative in ways that other people just had a blind spot for. So necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. But I think that's, you hit on it. I mean, that's, that's the problem. I don't think many people are willing to take chances. You know, a lot of places, at least in my experience, a lot of places inside higher education and out, you know, they, uh, they want the benefits of the innovation without any of the risks. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, oh, I, yeah, we want to change everything. We want everything to be better. So well, what are you willing to change? Well, you know, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's a piece that, you know, it's hard I mean, just on its face, it's think about doing anything different, learning, juggling, you're learning to juggle a Rubik's cube, uh, long division. It's hard to get things right the first time. Anything that above rudimentary cognitive skill, right? Like the, or even physical skills. So much less changing systems and structures. And I think that's, that's something that has been, it's been on our mind a lot as we go work particularly in public institutions that have real accountability. Mm -hmm. So you're, if you're a K-12 school, your school's report card, like that determines funding that comes in or Mm -hmm. a teacher's evaluation, performance evaluation in some, to some extent determines the paycheck that they receive. And so um, those are real consequences. And so that creates real um, 
kind of nuanced context for how not just risk averse people are willingness to engage in risk, but, but the types and, and so balancing that idea of like risk and innovation together, failure tolerance for failure or, um, the reframe that a lot of design thinkers will share is kind of reframing failure as learning. So Mm -hmm. the idea isn't that we're going to try and fail and then we're done. How do we spin that up again and create a virtuous cycle of iterating our way forward through what you might otherwise consider failure. And like, as I say that, right, there's a sense where like, boy, that sounds really sweet. I'd love to get a lot of people to believe that. But I think that's, you know, that's where it comes in with parts of like kind of, let's say leadership or collective power to say, no, we're, we're going to stand to believe that. And that's going to allow us to act in these different ways. And we're seeing, pockets of that trying to promote that but i do see that in more in the dialogue let's say in the innovate conference space mm-hmm. with colleagues than maybe i see elsewhere and and maybe conferences are good for that right let's get together and- it's, a t- yeah, it's a test bed you know i mean they're they're kind of designed to be that i mean that it's in it's on the tin you know give us your unfinished work and get feedback <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know fail more fail better right yeah. And that's, I, I tell my students that all the time. I'm like, look, I don't, I want you to struggle and I want you to see where you, where your missteps were. You know, you should be working. This should be hard. It's, it's not an easy thing to swallow. You're really going to chew on it. You know, you learn much more if you kind of stumble a bit. Yeah. It's an interesting idea and it's interesting to think about. I'll give an example. I am in a doctoral program now and I have, a cohort that's become, you know, really a, a, a social group and, you know, a, a scholarly kind of group of colleagues that I come to really um, enjoy and in some ways depend on. But a lot of our, you know, kind of shared discourse across like a Facebook group, right, um, where we're talking about assignments and when's this due and what's your understanding of this and what do you think of this reading and um, and just sharing life life needs. Hey, I, I need this. Or I posted out there when we, when I, we first started, Hey, um, my partner was looking for, looking for a job. Hey, do you all have any leads, et cetera? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, one of the things that's funny is I think the median age of the group is probably, it's probably near 40 or around there. And we're still very much as a group spend a lot of time talking about grades and talking about how does the instructor want this and how does it want this done. And there are times where I find myself wanting to push back with a group of like, that's the wrong thing to focus on. Yeah. We're it's about the learning and who cares? And no one's gonna ever ask for your it's so true doctoral <laughs> transcript. But it's this stuff is it you're saturated with mm-hmm. it from the time I mean I was telling tell my partner yet yes literally yesterday we're driving in the park. I can remember kind of discrete moments in like sixth grade was the first time I can remember like feeling pressure to get some particular kind of grade and the, the stress that that caused in my life, like literal, like I can remember being a sixth grader crying about whether or not I was going to get a B and what that meant. And I certainly did not have parents who were, you know, I don't think they were going to, the world wasn't going to end if I got a B, (laughs) but I just remember. And so much of my, Everything since then has been kind of focused on thinking about how could you organize, 
how could you design schools or educational experiences in a way that people never felt that kind of like almost like a kind of psychological violence mm-hmm. that that and maybe some of it's good right like learning's unpredictable and sometimes you you learn things you don't want to learn or you know you, um <laughs> But, At least didn't intend to. <laughs> yeah. Well, it certainly learned things you never intended to learn or things that you can't unlearn. Mm. Um, but that sort of experience, like you almost like no, no kid should have that. Right. Mm. So I'm starting with kind of this normative claim. Maybe there are people out there who think kids should have that. And, oh, and we intentionally want them to have that experience. Yeah. But I remember are. the ways in which, you know, we talked, we touched on this a little bit, like cheating problems and things like mm. that are, are as often or probably more structural than, than they are a normative judgment on someone's like character mm-hmm. and that the context and the stress you put people under leads them to do things. So, um, our, is our overlord checking in on us? No, on the <laughs> Amazon delivery. <laughs> like saw, the echo kind of. I way. saw your echo light up, light up in red, and I thought maybe I'd gotten too, maybe I'd starting to get too, too Marxist no, for its I, likings. I, I muted it and I totally turned down the volume. I don't know. It just overrode my commands. It's becoming sentient. Uh, <laughs> who'd have thunk? <laughs> but, uh, Maybe that's a good place to stop. I think it might be. <laughs> with, the, uh, with the impending and inevitable robot uprising, I think we'll call it a day. <laughs> I always loved you, Echo. <laughs> She doesn't care. No, she doesn't no, care. No, and they shouldn't. They, <laughs> they can read my tweets. <laughs>